Happy Mother's Day. You know, um, in our culture today, uh, it is normal to value those who are very visible, and oftentimes we seek to be very visible uh, through various means, social media being one of those. We want everyone to see what we're doing and to like what we're doing and respond and give approval to what we're doing. Um, and oftentimes, uh, being a mother is, and the work that that takes and requires is not something that is visible to lots and lots of people. Um, but let me encourage you, particularly this morning, if you are parenting very small children and it feels like a very difficult job, because it is, and you don't feel seen and feel visible, the Lord sees every book you read, he sees every game of sorry that you play and of Candyland. He sees every diaper you change. He sees every moment that you give of love to your children. And there's great value in that. And he values that. And so let me just encourage you this morning, if it's a struggle at times, as I know it is, um, keep going, keep loving, keep being gracious and teaching and training uh, because it has eternal value in the lives of your kids, and then in the lives of the, those in the church, and ultimately of the culture as well. And so keep going as you're, as you're in the thick of it right now, all right? Well, we're going to be in John 6 this morning, so you're probably already open there. Speaking of mothers, every mother knows that children are often picky, especially young children, when it comes to their selection of foods. But be encouraged that most of the time, as your children grow older, there are exceptions to this, but most of the time as your children grow older, become adults, they will learn to embrace a wider variety of foods. Um, I used to think coffee was gross. Maybe some of you are like that, but about 10 years ago, so I was already an adult, about 10 years ago, I, I found a little bit of coffee that I liked and took an interest in it and started drinking it. And then over the course of time, my taste for it developed. I began to understand what better coffee was and developed a taste for how it is made and uh, increasingly uh, good coffee. I like it now. And at this point in my life, it is a necessity for me every morning. <laughs> That could be because of the massive withdrawal headache I get by 9 a.m. if I do not have a cup of coffee, but it's become, my taste has developed to the point where it's become one of the best parts of my, my morning, where I'm able to just sit down for a few minutes there with my cup of coffee and it's nice and warm and I don't just love the warmth of it and the experience, I love the taste of it now. That has been cultivated in my life over a few years years. I savor it now in the mornings. It's funny because we often think of our taste for something, our appetite for something, as, as that which is out of our control. We think, well, I like what I like, and I don't like what I don't like, and I don't have a lot of control over that. Well, that's not entirely true. You like and you desire a lot of things. You desire certain foods. You like certain clothes. They're appealing to you. There are hobbies that you take an interest in, certain types of music, movies, decoration styles, even cars. 
There's a host of things that you like, and most of those appetites and tastes that you have have been shaped by the influence of other people, of those close to you, of things you have seen, and it has taken a very slow process of change and cultivation to get you where you are now to like what you like and dislike what you don't like. Now, with all of that in mind, we humans are very interesting creatures because we are both physical and spiritual beings. We have a material side and a spiritual side, and so our tastes and our desires often vacillate between the physical and the spiritual. I mean, think about it. You have eternity. Every human being has eternity written on your heart. You intuitively know that there's a spiritual side to life, and you can suppress that, and you can push it down, and you can alter your taste for that. But the Bible says eternity is written on our hearts. It's there. We understand that we're going to be somewhere after we die. But even with that spiritual side there and a desire that is there for spiritual things that we have at times, we live in a material world, and that's what's right in front of us. And that material world is created by God, and it's good as he has given it to us. And so living in a physical world with a spiritual reality that we can't see, we are meant to have tastes and desires for this world. Those are good things given by God, but then those tastes and desires are meant to point us to the next world, and they're meant to point us to the creator of this world. But what often happens in our fallen state is that our taste and our desires for the physical, for the material, for what is right in front of us, those desires crowd out our desire for the spiritual. And so we don't even think about it. We don't even see it. We don't even want the spiritual anymore because the physical has crowded that out. We gorge ourselves on temporal goods, and there are a lot of temporal goods to enjoy, gifts that God has given. But we gorge ourselves on those things, and we have no appetite left for what is spiritual and what is eternal. And that is exactly what happens in this passage. That is the description of the crowds here and why they're following Jesus at this point. And I want to show that to you this morning as we continue through John chapter 6. And we're going to see what takes place after the two miracles that we looked at last week in John 6, 1 through 21. Today we're going to be in verses 22 through 40. And here's what I want to give you this morning. One warning and one encouragement. And both of these are regarding your taste for the true bread of life. Your desire, your appetite for the true bread of life. I want to give you one warning and one encouragement, all right? First, the warning. Temporal, material appetites will keep us at times from tasting the true bread of life. And this is in verses 22 to 34. So let me recap just a bit here and bring you up to speed, especially if you weren't here. At the beginning of John 6, we saw Jesus and his disciples make their way to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is this lake in northern Israel, and they made their way to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and a very large crowd followed them. 
And as this crowd followed them into the wilderness, up on a mountain, Jesus performed a sign by taking a very small amount of food, some barley loaves and some fish, and he took this small amount of food from a boy and he distributed it to thousands and thousands of people, and all of them were fed, and they were fed more than they could eat to the point where they had baskets, 12 baskets of this food left over. Well, of course, the people respond to this sign, this miracle. They call Jesus a prophet. They recognize that something significant has happened here, obviously. And then they're so excited about all of this food at their disposal and what has just happened that they try to take Jesus by force and make him their king and set up their own government because, hey, we're going to have our food provided for us. This is great. Imagine having a king like this. And so when that happens, that, is not, that does not fit into Jesus' plan to become the true bread of life. And so he gets out of there and escapes up the mountain and gets away from them. Well, at the end of the day, when evening comes, the disciples get into a boat without Jesus, and they begin to cross the Sea of Galilee, headed back over to the western shore, the more familiar shore to them. A strong wind blows them about, most likely a storm happens, and they're out in the middle of the night, it's completely dark, and they see Jesus walking on the lake, on the water, toward them. They're obviously astonished by this, because in the Old Testament, only God tramples on the waves and walks on the water, and so they're very happy to see him, and they welcome him into the boat, and then they get to the other side, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where our story today picks up in verse 22. Look there with me. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side, so they're still on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So the disciples get into the boat without Jesus They go on the other side of the lake, or they go out on their boat, and the crowd knows that something is up. The boat is gone. Jesus did not go with him, but they can't find him. Look at verses 23 and 24. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So very much this section continues the story on from the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 24. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they get into boats, they cross over to the western shore and go to Capernaum looking for Jesus, and that is exactly where they find him. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice they call him rabbi. So they're acknowledging him as a teacher, a teacher of the law. Think about what they've already called him in this story. They've called him a prophet. They've sought to take him by force and make him king. So rabbi, prophet, king. They're a little bit confused about who he is at this point. A lot of different options. But they're also very curious about how he got from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other when there were no boats available for him to traverse the lake. They ask him about that in verse 25. 
Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus, for his part, is not interested in answering that question. He's not interested in explaining the whole walking on water thing to them. And so, look what he does. He goes after their motivation for asking. This is very, very typical of Jesus in the Gospels. He changes the course of the conversation to what they need to talk about and what he, in his grace, wants to talk about. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what Jesus means here is they're not looking for him. They're not pursuing him across the lake and coming after him because they saw the sign and understood it. They did see the sign, even though it seems like they didn't, but they only think of it as a miracle. They did not grasp the significance of what he had done. They're not understanding that that miracle, that sign, was meant to point beyond itself to Jesus as the true bread of life. Obviously, he's not made that explicit to them yet, but that's what the sign was supposed to indicate to them. Instead, they're looking for him. They're going to these great lengths, going across the lake the next day, trying to find him because their physical appetite was met, was satisfied, and it was still driving them. Essentially, they're looking for more food. They want to be fed again. And because their physical appetite is driving them, their taste for material goods, for material foods, Jesus makes this very clear distinction here in verse 27. And this is the driving passage verse in this whole section. This is the distinction here that Jesus wants us to get as we read the rest of this passage. Look at verse 27. He says to them, Do not work for the food that perishes or spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now let's get something straight here. There's nothing wrong with physical food. Thank goodness. I like it. You need physical food. You need to eat in the morning. You need food to sustain your physical body, which is created by God and given to you. But these people were so enamored with the prospect of having their material needs met that it led them to ignore their true spiritual needs. It became an overwhelming desire. It crowded everything else out. Physical food will spoil, right? I mean, even the food that was put in the baskets the day earlier would spoil. And eating it will provide temporary satisfaction, but only temporary satisfaction. They're going to get hungry again. And they want to make sure they can have their physical needs met. But Jesus here tells them, you're looking for this, but God has made available to you through me the food that will endure to eternal life. It won't spoil. It won't go bad. You can't keep physical food forever, but I'm offering to you, God is offering to you, through the one whom he has sent, food that will satisfy and will last to eternal life. This food will never spoil. 
And so this sets up a dichotomy here in this passage. Temporal goods versus eternal goods. And again, let me say, there's nothing wrong with temporal goods. But when they overwhelm and crowd out the spiritual, it becomes an either-or. Physical needs versus spiritual needs. That's the contrast at the heart of this passage. Jesus is not saying ignore your physical goods or your physical needs. He's not saying ignore your family, ignore your work, ignore your hobbies, ignore the things you enjoy. That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that oftentimes our right in front of us needs will cause us to ignore our spiritual needs. They pursued Jesus in order to, in order to have those things met. Their physical appetites were overwhelming their need for forgiveness of sins and their need for an eternal relationship with God. That wasn't even on their radar here. But they're not getting what Jesus is teaching and saying in verse 27. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So, let me, essentially what they're saying here is, fine, they're sort of acting like they understand what he is teaching, fine, what does God require of us, we'll do that. Whatever God requires of us, we'll do that so that we can have our physical needs met. That's what we want. And Jesus now attempts to direct their attention to their spiritual needs. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. God does not require your work, your goodness, your ability, your obedience to the law. None of that is what he's looking for from you. Here's what he is looking for. And it's not even a work. He wants you to recognize your spiritual need, your appetite, your hunger for what is spiritual. He wants you to recognize that you have a great spiritual need, and he wants you to recognize the one who has been sent to meet that spiritual need and trust him. Believe in him. Believe in his work and his person and his mission. God wants you to exercise faith in a particular person. That's what he requires of you. Now again, they can't seem to grasp what Jesus is saying. Their focus is so on their physical needs. And so they respond by saying, okay, believe. Why don't you give us something to believe in? Look at verses 30 and 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, give us something to believe in. Now, amazingly enough, it's like they've forgotten the sign from the day earlier, right? They don't, they don't even think of that anymore as a significant miracle and sign that points to Jesus. They're asking for something else. So ultimately, they turn to Moses. Now, we've talked before, as we've gone through the book of John, about how much these crowds of people, the Jews, loved Moses. And Jesus has pointed out before how consistently they misinterpret and misread Moses. The same thing happens here. They quote the Old Testament. 
But you'll see in a second, they're completely misreading and misunderstanding what is going on in the Old Testament. The passage they're quoting from here is Psalm 78. And I want you to turn over to Psalm 78 this morning. I'm going to read you a section of this this psalm. When you read their quote, the passage that they're telling to Jesus here in context, it's actually ironic that they're using this passage because in Psalm 78, the whole context, the whole focus of this psalm is on God's mighty works that he does to display his character and display his glory, and then the Jews' failure to see those works and believe in him. Pretty ironic that these people who are failing to see the glory of God through the work that Jesus is doing are quoting a passage where the Old Testament Jews were doing the exact same thing. Look at Psalm 78. We'll start in verse 21, but I'd encourage you to go back and read the whole thing later on today. Recounting the history of Israel, start in verse 21. Here's what he says. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat. And then here's the part that's quoted. And gave them the grain, the bread of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Sounds very similar to what has happened in John 6, doesn't it? Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. This is looking back to the Exodus. And by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled For he gave them what they craved. Their physical desires were driving them to fail to trust God. Verse 30, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. It's an amazing passage for these crowds of people to quote Dealing with Jesus here. The Jews in the Old Testament had these cravings for physical food and they failed to trust God's provision for them despite what they had seen in the Exodus. All the miracles that God performed to get them out of Egypt. They saw those and they didn't believe in God despite what they had seen. And the same thing is happening here in John 6. And so Jesus turns their attention back again to their spiritual needs. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They think of Moses as giving them this bread which is quite a reading of the Old Testament. But it was actually God who provided this for them. And now he's providing for them something even better. He's providing for them the true bread from heaven. Now, let's talk about that phrase there, true bread from heaven. 
It's not that the manna in the Old Testament was false. It's not a comparison between what's false and what's true. But the emphasis that they're giving here on Moses misses the point of the Old Testament story and of the Old Testament scriptures. This is a prime example of what Jesus is pointing out in John 5 about how they misread the Old Testament because they fail to see how it speaks of him. You have to read the Old Testament that way. Moses is not the point. He's never been the point. The manna is great, but the manna is always intended to look ahead and anticipate the true bread from heaven. To be the true bread from heaven is to be the bread that doesn't just provide physical life and sustain physical life. That's the contrast here. To be the true bread from heaven is to be the bread that gives and sustains spiritual life. It's to be the bread that brings us into a relationship with God because he is the most real and most true being in the universe. And so to eat of this bread is to be brought into a life that knows God, that now has a restored relationship with him. That's what we were created to do. That is true life. John 17, 3 speaks of this. The eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this Offering from God of the true bread of heaven is what is necessary that we eat of this bread in order to receive eternal life. And Jesus quite clearly and obviously is this bread. But the crowd is so focused on physical bread that they can't even see what Jesus is alluding to in verse 32 or verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. And it's like they don't understand that he's talking about himself. So look what they say in verse 34. They say, said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, as we think about this contrast before we get to verse 35, as we think about this contrast between physical and spiritual, let's go back over this a little bit this morning and apply it to our own lives. I'm sure, like me, you are busy our lives are consumed with lots of good things. And they are good things. You have material needs. I have material needs. We need food. We need clothing. We need housing. We need friendships. We need relationships. There's lots of good things that God has provided for us to enjoy that make up our lives here on this earth. But it is so easy for us to let the material submerge the spiritual and push it down and drown it out. And for us to forget that we have a spiritual need and our spiritual need is ultimately a relationship with God. And the only way that relationship with God takes place is through partaking of the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. And in order to rightly see that, we need to have eternal eyes. So let's change the metaphor now from tasting the bread of life to seeing with eternal eyes what God has provided for us in the bread of life. And this is our second part of this, an encouragement. So we have a warning, 
Temporal appetites will keep us from tasting the true bread of life. And now, switching the metaphor a bit, here's an encouragement. Eternal vision, you need to see this and I need to see this the way God sees it. Eternal vision will allow us to see God's purposes in the true bread of life. To truly value him and have a taste for him, we need to see the Lord Jesus the way God has presented him, and we need to understand the purpose for which God has given him. Jesus makes this quite plain to the crowds here. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is the first one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, there's no doubt here that Jesus is referring to Isaiah chapter 55. He's not pulling this out of thin air. It's beautiful how the miracle and the Old Testament allusions all come together in what he is teaching. So I want you to turn over to Isaiah 55, and we're going to read a few verses out of that passage where Jesus is, is pulling this from. And as you do that, I want you to understand very quickly what is happening in the book of Isaiah that gets to these verses in Isaiah 55. Most of you probably know what happens in Isaiah 53. If you were with us in the Good Friday service, Isaiah 53 is all about the servant of the Lord who offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He offers himself so that they can have atonement, have forgiveness, and come to God. He brings redemption through his substitutionary offering of himself. That's Isaiah 53. Then Isaiah 54, God promises that through the work of the servant, that he uses this metaphor of Israel's tents being expanded. What does that mean? Well, they're going to need bigger tents Because more and more people from all the nations are going to come to this servant. And they're going to be included in this substitutionary offering of redemption. They're going to receive forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to need bigger tents. Expand the cords out. Get the bigger tents because people are coming. And then in Isaiah 55, you have this beautiful offer that is given to those who see the work of the servant. The offer of this covenant is given to anyone who will come. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus is identifying himself here when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He is identifying himself as what is being offered in Isaiah 55, and as the servant in Isaiah 53, and as the one who through him the tents will be expanded out, and more and more people will come. Now he's identifying himself with All of these passages here, and I want to help you this morning develop your spiritual taste buds for the bread of life. I want you to want him. I want that to be what we go out of here desiring. He's the one who gives eternal life, and I want you to have not just a physical vision of what he's done, but an eternal spiritual vision of his work, and you'll see that through God's purposes in giving us the bread of life. And so I want to give you five purposes here. I'll put these on the screen and we will go fairly quickly through them. The bread of life, first of all, is sent by God. It's an initiative from God to give us the bread of life. Look back at verses 32 and 33. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look down at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Just as Jesus provided for the crowds of people with the the bread and the fish in abundance. And he did that out of his own initiative. He saw the need and met the need. So God sends Jesus to meet our spiritual needs. For God so loved the world that he gave. God sent the bread of life to redeem, to come. Secondly, The bread of life satisfies. Verse 35, it couldn't be clearer, right? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We are spiritual creatures. We try to push this down. We try to deny it. We try to suppress it. But you are a spiritual creature. You have a soul and you have a spiritual need. Deep in your heart is an emptiness that needs a relationship with God. You and I have been created for that. That's why we were made. And in our fallen state, we can feel a great lacking and a sense of emptiness. And we try to fill it with all of these physical things, material things, and they'll never satisfy. They'll never quench our thirst. It's like drinking salt water. The promise of Jesus here as the bread of life is that he is what satisfies. That ache, that thirst, that hunger, that's what he, that's the need that he meets. And ultimately, the whole thing comes to a conclusion in Revelation with this being mentioned as one of the major things that comes out of the work of Christ. Revelation 7, 
Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He satisfies. He satisfies in a way that we can never find satisfaction on our own. And he promises an eternal and undying delight and contentment that comes from eating the bread of life. Third, the bread of life secures. Verses 37 and 39. But before we get to those, I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 36. Because this leads up to the security that we're talking about. He's speaking to the crowd here and he says, But I said to you that you have seen me Right? They've seen him, they've seen the sign, but they do not believe. How would they come to believe? That's the question here. How would they exercise faith? They could not come on their own. That's what this passage teaches. They would not be the ones to suddenly develop a taste for the bread of life. They couldn't conjure this up on their own. John 3 told us that men love darkness rather than light. We come into this world with our tastes broken and twisted and aimed at all the wrong things. So how do they come? How do they believe? This would have to be the work of God in them. And the beauty of this is because it's the work of God, it's a secure work. God does not fail in accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those who taste of the bread of life and value it and come to the bread of life and receive eternal life, think about this, are a gift from the Father to the Son. It's an amazing thing. And because they are a gift from the Father to the Son to redeem them, the Father, the almighty, omnipotent creator God, makes sure that they come and that he will not lose them. He's not going to drop them. They're not going to run away from him. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Listen, this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're going through a rough patch right now, but if you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone, if you have come to him in true faith and been given spiritual eyes to see his glory, you will not be lost. You will ultimately come back to him. God will keep you as his own because you are a gift from the Father to the Son. And with that comes this. The bread of life must be seen and savored. Verse 40. So we just talked about God's work in calling and in 
choosing those who will be in Christ. And now we see the flip side of that. We see the responsibility of those who hear about Christ, who hear that he is the bread of life. So this is the flip side of God's sovereign work in salvation. This is the responsibility of every human being to see the Son, but not just to see him like the crowds did here, but to savor him, to believe in him, to trust in him. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God sent his Son so that we could see him. He did the signs so that we could see him. He died and rose again so that we could see him. And he recorded all of this in the Bible so that 2,000 years later, you and I could see the Son and that we could believe in him, we could savor him, we could develop a taste through the work of God for him. Don't be like the crowds here who saw the sign but didn't really savor the Son. They saw that he'd done something neat and miraculous. They had their physical appetites met, but they didn't really savor and understand the true offering of eternal life as the bread of life. Instead, see Jesus as the bread of life who truly satisfies your spiritual hunger and your need. And then what do you do? Reach out in faith. That sense of need is there and call out and reach out in faith and say, I can't make it on my own. I need you. I can't create eternal life in my own heart. I can't create a taste for you, but I want you. I need you, and I'm trusting in you. And what happens? Lastly, the bread of life saves. Verses 39 and 40. He meets our spiritual needs. The promise is there. When we see the Son and believe in Him, He meets our spiritual needs. He satisfies our spiritual hunger. But what's amazing here is the way this is described at the end of verse 39 and 40. Verse 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What's beautiful about this is this phrase, raise Him up on the last day, this is talking about the coming together of the physical and the spiritual. They're not opposed to each other anymore, as we often experience them being. They come together in this beautiful resurrection of our physical bodies to full and complete communion with God in eternal life, the last day. That's the ultimate promise of our salvation. As Christians, that's what we look toward and what we hope in. It's new life in Him, satisfaction in Him, and that we will spend eternity on the new earth with God coming down and dwelling among us. That is the transcendent hope we have in Christ. So, a warning and an encouragement this morning. Don't let the material crowd out the spiritual. See the Son 
and cultivate a taste for the true bread of life by seeing the purposes that God has in him that he has offered to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this text. We're thankful for the offer of the true bread of life to us. What a privilege we have to partake of you, Lord Jesus. What an honor. What an amazing thing. And so I pray this morning, if if anyone here has grown cold, if anyone here has never received you as the true bread of life, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would work in our midst this morning. Give us a taste once again this week for the Lord Jesus Christ and help us to daily go to him and feed on him as the next part of this passage will tell us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.